to the German Versatile Hunting Dog Files. I'm your host, Tim Moore, and the purpose of this podcast is to provide an in-depth look at the training, testing, and hunting adventures of the German Versatile Breeds. So before we get started, hit pause, go grab yourself a tall, cold glass of your favorite drink, sit back, relax, and get ready to enjoy another episode of the German Versatile Hunting Dog Files. We are back with part two of our three-part series on the fall breed tests. In this episode, we're going to be breaking down the field and drag portions of the fall breed test for our listeners and be looking at how to prepare and handle your dog and what to expect on test today. Today, I'm joined by Todd Waite. Uh, Todd has been around the system for quite a while and certainly knows his way around testing and handling the dogs. He's also a judge in the system and a breeder within the system. Todd, uh, I'm pretty excited about having you on today, and I hope that our listeners uh, are excited too to hear your version of the ins and outs, uh, as well as the do's and don'ts for the training techniques and uh, for test day itself. But before we get started talking about them topics, I'd like to give you a couple minutes to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Well, thanks for having me, Tim. Um, as many as some of you know, uh, my name's Todd Waite. I'm a Midwestern boy, um, and I really came to this uh, to the dogs through hunting. I was always a hunter first and foremost, and uh, I started with a dog in uh navda and it was primarily if you looked at the dog on paper and said where did this dog come from it had you know it had come uh from a lot of german hunting dogs lines so i you know doing research it, you know, it took me back to uh the german dogs and you know there was always a desire to learn more and more because i wanted you know i wanted the dogs uh that made up this dog so that i would always have them going hunting so that's kind of how i came uh to to this and uh over the years um i started out with my first dog uh arrow von riverwoods who was my first german dog and uh that was uh that was about 21 years ago so i've been doing this quite a while and i took her through the derby the Soames, and uh, the vgp i really learned uh, enjoyed the experience um and uh, I relied on others to teach me on how to do this. I didn't make this up. Uh, I was uh, lucky to have the help of a gentleman uh, named Dick Jensen, who was a Drodhar guy and a very experienced handler, take me under his wing and t teach me how to train these dogs. So uh, over the years, I've uh, ran several derby dogs. I counted them up the other day because I, I didn't really know myself, but I've uh, derbied eight dogs. Um, I've Solmsed eight dogs and VGP'd another four dogs. And I dare say I probably have done VJP on another four, four, four or five dogs too as well. So I've, I've really enjoyed running the tests. You know, that's kind of the competitive nature, I think, in myself. And it's a, a way that I, I can do that. And then, um, you know, when, when I was done with Jasmine, our the NADKC, I was a member of the NADKC at that time, was very small. We really didn't have many people. And uh, I was getting pressured to become a judge 
Uh, and it was something I was interested in too. So it wasn't just that people were asking me to do it. So I completed uh, the requirements. I became a form director. And, uh, you know, in those days, there weren't a lot of us judges and we would judge all the way from the East coast to the West coast. And it was, uh, judging was almost a full-time job. You know, you might, uh, you might have four judging engagements that were really outside of your area. So you might be traveling to, to judge a lot in those days. And then later on, um, similar to uh, our need for uh, Verbons Richters, we needed form Richters. So I, I studied and went through the testing program uh, to become a form judge. And uh, I found that to be rewarding too. So um, that's that's kind of what I uh, know. I, I am a breeder and uh, you have listed that. Truthfully, I I bred a few dogs. I don't really consider that uh, my, uh, me an expert in that area. I, I know what I like and I know how to reproduce what I like, but truthfully, and uh, there are people that are a lot better at breeding dogs than me. So um, I'll stay away from that subject. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, excellent. Excellent. So uh, thank you, Todd. I, I appreciate it. And uh, now that our listeners have a little, uh, have had a chance to get to know you a little better, I think we can, uh, it's fair to say we can get started here. So um, today we'll be covering training for each subject as well as how to handle the dog on test day at each subject. So let's kick things off with uh, field work here and we'll start with uh, the use of nose. So Todd, give our listeners a little explanation of how you might foster the use of nose in a young dog leading up to Psalms and the expectations of what you want that dog to do on test day and what you should be looking for. Right. You know, the use of nose is, there's a lot of natural attributes in, in use of nose. So what I've always done is, um, and I, you know, I, I have the ability, I can run my dogs a lot on wild birds. So I'll be quite honest, uh, Tim, you know, what I do is, you know, I, I rely a lot on exposure. I'll take those dogs out and I'll get them into stuff. I, you know, and the younger, the better, you know, if you have a chance to, to work that dog and my favorite time to start uh, a young puppy is, you know, really young, you know, three to four months, I get them out. If you can get them into birds, um, what you do is just put them in, uh, uh, put them in a scenario where their natural abilities really kick in. So, um, that's what I like to do. Uh, I think, you know, if you can get your dogs into as many different types of scenarios, the better. Um, for example, you know, a lot of guys are like, well, I don't want my dogs uh, chasing bunnies uh, or, uh, you know, I might, I not, might not want my dogs, um, you know, on different species, deer or whatever. But truthfully, I think for young dogs, um, you, you just can't give them enough you know, they learn by everything. So that's kind of what I do. I like to get them uh, as much exposure as they can. It's, I don't think it's anything you can do. You can't teach your dog to, to be better with its nose, but you can put it, you know, give it more opportunities to be successful with its own natural abilities. Okay. Okay. And, uh, you know, you mentioned a very, um, 
you mentioned use and nose, which, uh, you know, a lot of people, they just don't get. What, what do you mean by use and nose? And uh, the quality of the nose is a little bit different than use and nose. You know, some dogs are very gifted in, you know, um, in that they, you know, they want to use their nose more than they want to use their eyes, you know. And that's really what you'd like to see. So, you know, when you look into the test uh, description, you'll see a lot of things mentioned, like you want to see it lean into the wind and the dog might be chewing the wind or the scent. And uh, when the dog finds, uh, uh, notices game, it scents it from a long way off. And, uh, you know, those are all behaviors that you see in a dog and, and, those behaviors will tell you that that dog has got a very good quality in those and really knows how to use its nose. And um, what you like to see is a real nose uh, uh, dominated search. And uh, you'll, it'll, a dog that uses its nose to penetrate cover rather than going through cover itself, you know, shows that that dog has a bit of maturity about uh, its nose and confidence, you know, so you really want that dog con not only to have its nose to really rely on its nose for finding game, but to uh, be fairly uh, confident, you know, so that the dog will think my nose is what's going to tell me that there's game out there long before my eyes will ever tell me that there's game out there. And, uh, you know, one of the old timers told me, asked me one time, it's probably Dick Jensen, because he probably gave me all those life lessons, but dog is nothing more than a life support system for a nose. Okay. So, <laughs> so. Uh, it, it is neat watching them use their nose, that, that is for sure, especially a young dog coming into it and, and kind of, uh, you know, uh, if you'll say finding themselves, right? Um, you know, especially that first time on a bird and you... You, you see that that light switch come on and it's just it there's there's nothing neater than that or watch like you said watching a dog choose scent in the field or or heck even on the water it's, it's it's amazing to watch a young dog go on a duck search and they don't even know what they're doing yet they have no clue what the fundamentals of a duck search are but you, you know they get out there and they've lost sight of this duck and all of a sudden the light switch comes on they realize wait this thing on the front of my mouth here smell stuff and you just have to remember what that smells like so yeah very very cool stuff so sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you on your on your no. uh, your path there with the use and nose no that i i think you you captured it what i was thinking too and and you know one of the neatest things to see whether you're a handler or a judge is if you see that dog and young dogs will do it sometimes when they actually snap at scent, you know, whether it's in the air, I've seen them, you know, where you might, we might bring them into hot scent and that dog will just, it's, you know, the behavior maybe ain't the most desirable where the dog goes down and snaps or where it thinks the, the game is, but you're, you're thinking, man, that dog really, I mean, that dog is really trusting its nose. Sure. So. Sure. Absolutely. The, the proverbial uh, blindfold, right? So very, very cool. So. Now, when, you know, when we talk about use of nose, it, it rolls right into search. I mean, we want to see these dogs search. So go ahead and start talking about search a little bit. And we, we probably can key back off on how the use of nose is going to play into the search and so forth like that and quartering and such. Yeah, the, you know, the, there's um, when I start a dog on searching, you know, you're really trying to build that independent behavior where, 
you know, you got a young dog and like I mentioned before, I like to start them when they're three, four months old. And, you know, at that age, a lot of those puppies are still real dependent, you know, and you kind of got to get beyond that. So um, I'd like to take them out and I'll start in a, a natural weaving pattern just to kind of get them to follow me. I don't like to give a lot of commands, uh, whether it's a puppy or an older dog. And um, it's a great time to start building some behaviors. Like you want that dog to be looking at you. And so when that dog looks at you, you know, you, you give it a little compliment, good boy, and, and start giving that dog some hand signs, you know, and when you change direction, you know, I'll teach the hup, you know, I might have them on a rope, you know, and, and hup, you know, and bring them around. So I'll kind of teach them the beginning of handling at a very young age. Um, that's what I do. And uh, I like you know, I like that dog to continue, you know, when they're making those casts to go out and go out and go out. And a lot of people, you know, when the, when you get a dog that starts making some really wide casts, a lot of people, they get that uncomfortable um, feeling because, hey, that dog is, you know, that dog's out a little far. And uh, I think it's important for trainers to resist the urge to always call that dog back. Um, sometimes you got to let them get out on the fringes and, uh, find out where their comfort zone is. Um, but when you, you know, when you notice that they're doing a little self hunting, then, you know, bring them back around. But, uh, that's kind of how I foster, uh, dogs searching. And, um, what you look for is you look for a dog that's, you know, doing a nice brisk. You want it, you want to see a lot of motion, a lot of enthusiasm with that dog, uh, needs to be fluid, uh, needs to be persistent. Uh, what you want to do, want to make sure is that th there's no holes in uh, in that search pattern. Because, uh, you know, if you got a hole in your search, that could be where that game bird is and you don't get a chance to, you know, to harvest that bird. So, so when you want a dog that is were, fairly you, persistent. Let me, let me interrupt you real quick. When you talk holes for, for a new handler, pretend pretend I'm a new handler. You know, and you, and you say to me, you want to, you want to narrow these holes down, you know, or give me an explanation of what a hole is when you reference that in a search. Sure. Sure. Safe. Now you're safer. You're hunting, right? You got a big field in front of you and, um, you don't know where the game birds are. They could be anywhere in that field. You, you have no idea. And let's say you have a dog and you know, it wants to hunt to your left and you're like, well, I got all this field to my right we can't hunt. That could be a hole in the field. Or okay. if you got a dog that makes cast, great big cast, but the next cast might be way in front of you. And there might be a big section of that field that there could be birds in. And, uh, you, you know, the dog wouldn't know because it's too, his casts are too far apart, you know? So those, those might be two, there's two examples there where you might've left a hole in the field where, you know, game has gotten through. So mm -hmm. when, then okay. when I say holes in the field and, you know, a mature dog, you know, and, and if you do a good t uh, job of bringing them along, you know, you can kind of guide a dog with your eyes, you know, and, or if you see that it's hanging to the left, maybe you start, you know, walking to your right. So you can, you can help a dog out a little bit in the search, but, uh, holes in, uh, in the search is, is not really desirable. You want something that, where the dog is covering most of the ground in front of you. And, uh, you'd like to see that search to be, uh, um, 
like I mentioned, persistent. And, uh, you know, this is where you had kind of mentioned, you know, you might end up talking about nose again, but, you know, anytime, anytime you look at uh, the use of nose and the search, um, when I'm judging, you know, the first thing I'll do before I'll even walk into that field is I will find out which way uh, the wind's going because, you know, a dog is going to hunt uh, into the wind and with the wind at its back, uh, two completely different ways, right? You know, because a dog is going to be way more confident with that nose, that wind in its face because there's more of the ground that it's covering Whereas when the wind at, is at its back, you know, them dogs are going to, you know, the way that we they react is totally different. And you should notice uh, that dog should know, too, which way the wind is going. They should be looking into the wind. Their noses should be pointing into the wind. And they should be using that wind to bring that scent to them. So um, those are all, you know, those are all attributes and behaviors that you like to see in search. Sure, sure. And even, you know, you mentioned, you know, the wind. So when you when the new handlers are out there training or you're starting a dog off and you start to do this, pay attention to that wind as you go out because, you know, you're going to want to watch their behavior and kind of either make mental notes of their behavior or, or keep a little log book. I know some guys that I've talked to, they keep a small little notebook in their car and if they go and take their young dog out for a run, they might note down uh, was no wind today, noticed the dog, did this, 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 or was a predominantly heavy wind, hunted the, hunt, tried to hunt the dog, you know, downwind or upwind as much as possible, worked the dog crosswind today to see its behavior and notice what the difference are, especially when you go to a test, you're going to, you know, try to always, like they say in Vegas, play from the hot corner, right? So, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, terrain plays to that too. You know, if you're in a, an area that's hilly, you know that those low areas, you know, the pretty good chance that wind's going to be dead, mm -hmm. you know, sure. or, or if you're on uh, the lee, uh, lee wind side and uh, you might end up with a lot of swirling. So where you think the wind is coming from might not be where it's actually coming from. And like right. you mentioned, you know, if that wind is super strong, um, you know, that could totally change, uh, your, uh, scenting conditions. So, um, you know, weather, weather is very important the terrain is important. Uh, wind is very important. So. Okay. Okay. This is all good stuff. And if you, you know, if you can give one, you know, well, let's go to, let's go to pointing first and then, then we'll, we'll, uh, I'll have my question for you there as far as the uh, test day goes. Um, you know, and, and, and we go, you know, move on to pointing. And I think uh, a lot of people, you know, one of the old guys that uh, that we train with, and I and I call him old, and he'll probably listen to this and get mad at me, but uh, um, we'll leave him nameless for that for that sake. But uh, it, he'll tell you too, you know, when when you talk about pointing in a test, as far as like a VJP or a uh, Derby, which are the spring tests, okay, the young puppy tests, and he says that pointing is described that could point a turtle, and they're going to judge the the uh the pointing based off of that so um it doesn't necessarily have to be a uh, game bird uh like todd said earlier um you know it could be rabbits it could be anything else um wild birds in the field and such like that too so they're judging the evaluation of pointing but we'll, we'll move into pointing and you know let's give the handlers a little bit of uh insight on how you start working pointing and 
so forth like that in teaching uh, steadiness. Yeah, I, pointing, you know, like I mentioned, I start those puppies out when they're three to four. What I, what I do is I start them out when they're three to four months old, old, and I'll get them pointing good, and then I'll kind of put them on the shelf for a while, and and then uh, I'll get through the derby. I'll usually force break, and then I'll usually come back to pointing, and I'll usually do most of my steadiness work on uh, with check cords, and uh, so. I, I like to start with a dog for me anyways. I like to start the the real regimented pointing work when that dog is force broke. Um, and it'll make sense in a little bit, but you know, I'll start with that check cord and I'll I'll start teaching woe uh, on the check cord in the yard. But I, I myself, I don't do a ton of it. Um, I like to get out in the field and uh, um, I use, traditionally I use a lot of pigeons and I'll pop them and, and what I'll do is, um, what you'll see with a lot of guys, you know, you'll see them, uh, use that check cord and then bring the dog in, dog will point and flush that bird and I'll, you pick the dog up and, and, you know, at first some dogs, they squirm a lot and whatnot, but, you know, uh, uh, when you start, you know, don't. I mean, don't be afraid if your dog is moving around a lot. They'll yeah, continually put them back uh, where you want them on point, uh, even after you flush and uh, gently, you know, gently stroke them, give them a little confidence back in them and tell them they were a, a good boy and, and then pick them up and go to the next bird. And uh, you'd be surprised over time, them dogs settle down and um, you they're usually by then, you know, you got a little older dog, so you can use a little correction uh, after a while, you know, use a little correction. Uh, that dog starts to break. You can, you know, uh, tip them over backwards with the check cord or, you know, what, whatever you need to do to put a little pressure on that dog to reinforce them to stand in one spot. But when you're done, always go up to them, give them some nice uh, gentle encouragement, build their confidence back up and then take them off point. And, uh, you know, with steadying work, it's a lot of repetition, you know, repetition, repetition, repetition. And when you get to the point where they can stand and watch that bird fly away, only really at that point are you ready to start incorporating any retrieving work with that dog. And uh, what I'll do is I'll start with uh, maybe shooting a starter pistol so they hear a shot and uh, when they're standing through the steadiness scenario and a shots scenario, what I'll do is I'll incorporate uh, throwing a dead bird. And uh, usually dogs, you know, they don't get that excited about uh, retrieving a dead bird. Well, they might, but uh, um, use that check cord as a correction and then get them so that uh, the scenario for them is nothing more than standing there through uh, the flush, a shot, and a thrown you know, a thawed bird. And uh, when they're doing that flawlessly and only then are you really ready to start shooting birds and having your dog retrieve them. And uh, at that point, what I do is I never let my dog uh, retrieve the first birds I shoot for it. What I do is I walk out, I pick up that dead bird, I put it in my bag, and then I will throw a dead bird 
there's a lot less um, uh, reason for a dog to break for a dead bird than a live bird. So I'm, what I'm hoping to do is slowly work him through uh, that drive that he might have to get to get that bird in his mouth. So, and only when they're doing that, then I'll break and let him, or let, only then will I let him go to the next step, which is shooting birds and let him actually retrieve those shot birds. When you get him to that point, I, I will salt in uh, thrown dead birds. And so the dog never really knows what the scenario is going to be. And, um, if you want to get a dog full, fully broke, I found that that's all, that's the best way to do it. So that, that's what so I do in, anyways. Interesting. You, you then, said you actually, you know, all the way up to a given point there, you're, you're not shooting even after force break and getting the dog steady. You're not actually giving them shot birds uh, only when you pick the bird up, which, which is again, something, you know, another technique we use. We do not give the dogs every retrieve, you know, when, once you get to even a finished dog uh, that's yeah. steady through wing shot and fall. that You know, that dog does not need every retrieve in the field. Once you give it every retrieve, it anticipates it. Like you said, once the anticipation is there, um, you know, these dogs, they know what they're bred for. Uh, it's in them. And once they you foster those characteristics in them and those, those innate behaviors there, they uh, they learn to love them, and you know you want them to hunt with you, not you know for themselves. So, yeah, I totally agree with that. But that's that's an interesting point. I'll have to have to keep that in mind here as I'm as I'm working my young pup. So, see how we can incorporate that aspect into it. So, and I'll be quite honest, Tim. When I go hunting, I hate my dogs being steady because uh, if I drop a pheasant, uh, you know. Them birds run so bad. If if your dog's not on them right away, that's a lost bird. So sure. I tend, you know, when I when I start hunting them and I know that I'm done campaigning them, I will, you know, I'll encourage them to break and just go get me the bird and bring it back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So absolutely, absolutely. In fact, you know, you talked about that, and I I will uh, I'll I'll tip tip the tip the board a little bit. I you know I was out in. Uh, Iowa with uh, a couple guys uh, a few years back and, and we had a great trip. It was, it was just phenomenal. We're, you know, we're hunting public land there. Um, and there were several scenarios where, you know, a bird was dropped and, uh, you know, and again, the dogs being on it was pertinent to retrieving that bird. And there were some scenarios where, you know, or I should say on it instantly, not, you know, not steady all the way through a sequence as if we would hold them for a test. But there were even some situations where that just wasn't even fast enough. So, um, you know, the other thing, too, is as you guys get into hunting, stuff like that, you know, make sure you're using the right um, the right shells for uh, what you're hunting and use good loads and stuff like that because sometimes that's, uh, that's a big difference in it, too. So I know we've switched to some uh, higher-end stuff, and we were out in South Dakota last year, and, and yeah, there were other guys that weren't shooting it that that did okay. But you know, I figure I go on a trip like that, I don't mind spending a few extra dollars on some bismuth or, or uh, especially where you can only shoot non-tox or something like that. So, but uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. You, you might want to edit this out, but I'm a firm believer in Fiocchi number fives. <laughs> well, I, was, I wasn't going to plug anybody, but, you know, since I'm not sponsoring anything, but we, I've been shooting a ton of them boss shells and uh, for waterfowl and uh, in Upland now. And uh, they're, they're, they're great. They're great. So, yeah, they um, make you, they maybe, make maybe a, will... you'd be surprised if, you know, you sometimes you think, um, you're not a good shot. You'd be surprised what going to a heavier load does, you know, cause it, it mm -hmm. really, I mean, it, you end up with a lot more energy when you do hit something. So. Sure. Sure. And we were, so when I, I've shot the, uh, the Fiocchi, uh, golden pheasants when we were out in South Dakota and North Dakota before, and, and they're phenomenal loads. Um, but when we went to Iowa, I had wound up, you know, getting cut short and, you know, couldn't get all my hands on any bismuth or, or better and all the, public lands are all non-tox there so um as you probably well know so one of shooting steel and you know it's just uh it's it's pitiful you know it makes you sick to your stomach to uh no matter how good the dogs are to to, to lose game especially something like that so yeah yeah i do but, uh, um back to back to being on uh, sticking to the subject yeah. uh, the <laughs> pointing um you know one one thing just to clarify you know for the psalms you expect a little bit more out of pointing than you do at a derby you know you really you know at a derby you're really looking for the presence of pointing and you want to see what you know mama put in the dog whereas you know at the psalms you're really looking for that dog that's ready to go into that first fall hunting season and uh, the expectation is that dog should hold game until you have the opportunity to shoot it so, uh, you know, a lot of people, a lot of times will ask, well, how do you know uh, when the appropriate time is uh, that a dog should hold it? And, and usually your judges will reflect on, you know, if I was hunting, would I have had a shot at that bird? Would I have had the time okay. to get up there and get a shot at that bird? And that's usually the criteria on how steady the expectation is for a dog at a Solms. So, okay. Salt, well, when we say Zalms, really, we're we're DKV guys, you know. Uh, but Zalms yeah. or or HZP, which are both fall breed tests. Um, I know a couple a couple people give me some feedback. They said, "Well, you're, you guys are using all them them acronyms or letters uh, compiled up, and you got some alphabet soup going on." So, um, but uh, but yeah. So, and again, Todd's talking about the fall breed test, which is which is the topic of this three part series here. What we're focusing on, guys. So uh, keep that in mind there, uh, and and when, whenever we reference the Zalms, it's it's pretty much interchangeable with the AZP, uh, HZP, and then the AZP is a, is a test that's eligible for older uh, Deutsch Kutzars that missed their fall breed test due to um, uh, injury or being in season or something like that, and it's judged a little bit differently, like we talked about in episode four. Uh, and then Scott and Jeff also mentioned in, in uh, episode two and three when we were looking at the understanding the JGHV and DKV better. So, yeah, absolutely correct. What one thing I did want to mention is, um, a lot of times at the fall test, you're always talking about when to award a 4H, and I, you know, a 4H is awarded when you you, you know you see a little bit better performance and you want to call it out so and um, very similar to if you were at an HCP and you wanted uh, 
to award uh, higher score and pointing. Um, what you know? How, what do you want to see out of a dog different than you would if you were just going to award a four? Uh, and for me, what I like to see is I, uh, you know, we talk about uh, tightly holding game. I like to see work, pointing work uh, that you would expect out of a dog that's more seasoned, you know, an older dog that's maybe an experienced hunting dog that maybe you shouldn't, you, it shouldn't really be the expectation for uh, a young dog, but maybe more so for an older dog. So a lot of times, you know, we'll use the explanation, this is pointing work that you would expect for a dog beyond this age. And a lot of times that's on moving game, you know, what's, what's a dog do on moving game uh, that you don't really expect it to do, or maybe a younger dog doesn't do. And uh, a lot of times you'll have moving game and that young dog just cannot handle um, uh, the distraction to take that bird out and, uh, not really the requirement of a Solms dog or an ACP dog, but that dog that's able to handle that moving bird and, uh, maybe over great distances or incredible distances. And, uh, in those kind of situations, we like to award a 4-H or if you're at the ACP and 11 and, uh, and what you're really trying to do is you're trying to tell the story of that dog. Hey, this dog has got something you just don't see at a dog at this age. Right. So, and, and those are only awardable, again, like mentioned in previous episodes, in natural ability uh, subjects. They're not eligible in trainable subjects. Um, you know, right. So, so again, it's going to be use of nose. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Use of nose, pointing, search and um uh duck search correct in the zombs um i i believe you're correct you don't okay. award it for cooperation you don't award it for obedience those type of those subjects sure, sure. okay okay and since since you brought it up we might we might as well slam it home cooperation now now cooperation and desire you know i think kind of go hand in hand so let's let's uh um, let's jump into those two and see, see what we come up with. Yeah. I, you know, I like to think of uh, cooperation more as a behavior, not so much what they're doing, but how they're doing it, you know, and it's kind of similar to desire that way, not so much what they're doing, but how they're doing it. And, uh, for cooperation, how, how do you really tell whether a dog is cooperative? Um, and it's different for different pieces of work. You know, when you're in the field, uh, what, what is cooperation? You know, it's, it's that dog that wants to stay in contact with the handler. It's a team. He's working together. You guys are buddies. And, uh, um, with, you know, with, uh, desire, you know, it's really the enthusiasm for doing the work. So you might be part of that equation. You might not, you know, or that dog just wants to find game. He's, he wants to go. So there's a little nuance there that people have a hard time and obedience kind of gets into that too, where, uh, you know, people have a hard time differentiating between the pieces, but, um, you know, cooperation is, is I'm not giving any commands. That dog is just working with me. Um, you might, a good place to see it is in the field work. A good example of seeing that is a dog that likes to stay in contact with the handler. Uh, mm -hmm. another area you might see it is, uh, um, on the drag field, I know I've given a, a dog uh, 
uh, command, which is really obedience. But, you know, when the dog gets out there a couple hundred yards, how is it staying on task? You know, a dog that likes to stay on task, probably a pretty cooperative dog. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So there are two areas where you tend to notice that. Okay. Okay. And, uh, you know, I, and again, um, I don't know, this is always the way it was taught to me is, uh, desire is going, cooperation is coming. So, um, you know, it's kind of a, just a general rule of thumb is the desire is the dog's desire to get out there and go right. And the cooperation is, you know, knowing the balance and not going too much, you know, when to, when to ease off the throttle and start working back in the field and, you know, um, you know, you said you don't generally teach any any commands to it, but you know, if we we look at it from a whole, you know, cooperation can be taught by, you know, with the search when you were talking about, you know, teaching a dog to hop and and to quarter back and forth, you know, teaching a dog whether you're not whether you realize it or not, we're teaching a dog to be cooperative. The same thing with, you know, retrieving. You know, we want them to be cooperative and so forth and going through force break and stuff. So. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. You know, when when you're doing stuff to socialize that dog, um, those are the building blocks that are going to build on cooperation later on in that dog. You know, and and the cooperation, you know, is is one category. But if you want to realize the most, but out of the potential out of that dog, that's something you just need to have. You know. Sure, sure. And again, you're you're you know, as much as we're teaching obedience. When you use release traps or anything else like that, we're also building desire too. If you're, you know, releasing pigeons in the release trap, um, same scenario. You're gonna get the dog out there. You're gonna work the search. The dog comes into the bird. You're gonna point. You know, you're using a check cord to possibly stop them or roll them back or a half hitch. Again, teaching cooperation. But when that bird comes up and that bird flies out, you know, they they have that desire that they want to go after it, and you just want to foster that, like you said. So. Now, when you, you know, when you talk about, you know, not to jump too fast, but uh, when you talk about obedience, how do you roll obedience into those two then? And where does obedience fall into that? Obedience is gauged. If you give a dog a command, the dog needs to um, obey that command. And uh, um, where we will judge it most uh, in Personally, I don't like to give a lot of commands because it's an opportunity for failing. You know, mm -hmm. the expectation is, is the dog com follows the command, you know. So if you could teach the dog to have a behavior that it follows that um, task without a command, you're, I mean, you're money ahead. So if your okay. dog is coming in for a retrieve and it just automatically sits and you don't have to tell it anything, that you know, you're in a better position. But if you're that guy that's got to sit there and tell the dog, sit, sit, sit. Well, those are opportunities for deductions in the category of obedience. And likewise, if you're out in the field and you're telling the dog to come because he's getting out there and doing a little self-hunting and, and maybe that's something that you've taught that dog inadvertently in training that I will tell him when he needs to come back. So he's waiting for that come, 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 that when he doesn't come, well, that's that means that's an opportunity for that dog to you know get a deduction in a in the obedience category so personally I, I don't like to give a lot of commands I don't like to give them when I'm searching in the in the field and uh, if I and I I don't like giving him uh, when I'm doing retrieving aspects either so okay okay all right 
Now, and again, too, I, I'm, I'm kind of old school, you know, um, back in, you know, some of the, some of the listeners early on heard some of the episodes, you know, some of my coming up was with meat dogs and stuff like that, and then getting involved with Navda and so forth. But again, one of the things is, you know, um, single command, you know, you, like you said, you give the dog a double command where a sit, and then you have to give him a stay. Now you, you lead yourself up for more failure or, you know, give him a dog a command to sit instead of repeating the command, reinforce it, um, you know, or correct it, should say, correct the bad behavior. But uh, like you said, that multiple commands, I've seen it many, many times. It, it, it can hurt you, you know, so uh, especially from a, a test aspect. So. And uh, just to touch on this one more time, because I think this is important and I think a lot of people miss this opportunity i i do a lot of yard work with my dogs which means i do a lot of obedience work and i do way more obedience work than i do probably field work and other types of work um i i just i feel it's something that's probably overlooked a lot you know field work is funner to do you know to get out there and Mm -hmm. uh um, you know, to pop birds and to see your dog pointing and, and doing retrieves and seeing retrieves. That's a lot of fun. I mean, that's enjoyable for a handler. It makes for a great uh, weekend, you know, when you're out training with your buddies. But um, I truly believe that the obedience uh, work is as important. And I think it builds, um, like I said, it reinforces a lot of the proper behaviors and probably gives the impression of a very cooperative dog and uh, I feel like most people miss that opportunity. It, absolutely, absolutely. And in fact, again, referencing back to our old crabby guy, you know that that comes out and trains with us. Maybe someday we'll be able to <laughs> drag him on the podcast here if he'll, if he'll be willing. I and think I you can, ought to. I, I I can get him on here. You know he he. Um, He's but again, defend he always, himself, always, Tim. What's that? He's got to defend himself. I mean, he, he does. And, and again, this is not, this is not, uh, I'm not picking on him, but, uh, you know, I don't want to steal too many of his lines. Uh, but, uh, you know, his fame, one of his famous ones is, uh, you know, everybody wants to come out here and extend their hunting season. Right. You know, right. and like you said, the yard work is, is crucial. The obedience work is crucial. We try to reinforce that, you know, in our Nav, the training days and, and, and the other, you know, any DKC training days that we're at, um, the, you know, the foundation blocks are essential. If you do not put the foundation blocks underneath these dogs, you know, once you get to the higher pressure tasks that you asked of them, um, you know, you're going to, you're going to find your holes again, not necessarily in the field or your search, but in the training that you do. So, uh, so yeah. So again, I, I, I like, uh, I like that mentality you have about, uh, the yard work and, you know, we always try to tell people, uh, came off some good, good, uh, good advice from a guy one time that, you know, 90% of his training is done in his house, his basement, his yard, and his garage. So, yeah, he's yeah. a smart man, probably passed a lot of tests. Uh, yeah, yeah, he's actually, yeah, you, you, uh, <laughs> one of, one of our friends from over across the pond. So, uh, and he is, oh. he has a very, very high proven track record and, uh, is very involved with the dog. So, uh, that was from uh, our friend uh, Jens uh, Stahl over in Germany. Oh. Uh, he came over for a seminar a couple of years ago, and uh, we did like a three-day clinic. And and again, when he you know when he says that, it kind of resonates with you. And you go, huh? 
yeah, I guess that does make sense. You know, really, the amount of time we spend in the field on the birds is, is minimal compared to the amount of time that the foundation and obedience and everything in the yard and the training table that we put into. So, um, so fantastic. Um, I do, I'm going to, I'm going to jump back real quick. It just, just because I meant to ask and I, and I, I had it written down here and I apologize. I, so let's jump back to when we go use a nose search and pointing, we're going to lump all three of those in there. If you can give, you know, one solid piece of advice to a new handler, a first time handler or somebody who's tested, but it doesn't have, is not as seasoned as, as yourself when it comes to test day. What would be the, the, the biggest thing you could tell them to do to be successful with those three categories when they come to a test? Um, you know, for those things, I truthfully, I think, you know, getting the, um, spending the time, the time in the field is, is very important, uh, and if you want a dog that knows what it's doing when you put it in the field, you know, you got to put it in the dog. So, you know, you really got to do the work. Um, advice to help them be successful. If I see people that are having problems in any of these areas, there's, I wouldn't even worry about use of nose. Um, there's nothing that they're going to be able, I mean, other than the socialization, there's nothing they're going to be able to do to really, uh, impact that a lot if they're a new handler anyways uh, the important thing is to build search and to uh, you know if, if guys have problems it's because they just don't put another enough time into the pointing work you know you end up with a dog that's out there taking out birds so mm -hmm. um, I would say the most likely scenario if a guy's going to have problems in one of those three areas it's going to be in that pointing area so that's, you know, that's where I would spend the time. And, and, you know, Tim, I know a lot of guys have said this and I know a lot of new handlers have heard this, but go find somebody who knows how to train these dogs and get some help because it's just not as easy as putting birds out and getting your dog into them. And, and you know, the, what could happen is, is you put birds out and if they're not quality birds, your dog's going to run around and catch them. And now you have something you actually have to fix rather than trying to, um, you know, build the proper behavior. And, you know, it's, it's, it, you know, teaching dogs to point is just something it, the first time you do it, it's nice to have somebody show you how to do it. I sure. don't know, maybe, Absolutely. maybe you feel different, but that, you know, I think if, uh, if I were to give somebody some suggestion, it would be to, to go find somebody to help you do pointing work for the first okay. time, especially. Yeah. I, 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 again, like anything else, we talk about it all the time. You know, people ask questions and, and, uh, about training days and stuff. And we, we talk about how we train. And I always reference as, as we, we're not here to train your dogs. We're here to train you to train your dog. Right. And we train collaboratively. So, um, try to explain that to somebody sometimes and they just don't get it you are going to learn more on how to properly handle your dog by helping others train their dogs. I promise you, hands down. Yeah. Um, it, it's, uh, it's just a proven fact. Once you break out of that mold and you get that out of your head that you're here to train your dog on a given day, you know, on a said training day, um, and you let go of that guard, 
and you get involved, you're going to get way more out of it. Um, once you start pulling a drag for a guy or going and planting birds, you start realizing what thought goes into this. You know, you're looking 50 yards ahead to make sure that, you know, the cover that you're pulling this drag through looks suitable from where you're at. You're counting the paces off and you're making sure that you're doing what you need to do. Um, you know, that you're, you're leaving proper scent on the ground for the drag and so forth from the drag animal. Um, same thing with pointing birds. You know, you're going to pay attention to the wind. The wind's pushing this way and this is the only field you got. So you start thinking about that kind of stuff and, it, and I think it, it resonates and makes you think about how to set up scenarios for your dog and why you want to be successful in every training scenario to the, to the highest level. So spot on yeah so all right before we get too boring here let's let's move on to the meat and potatoes of of, of the uh of the, the the fall test and that's <laughs> that's really uh your drags right because you got your drags or, or i should say your drags and all your retrieves but today we're we're covering the field and drag portion so we'll talk about about those there so um we'll kick it off with the third game drag yeah i just to stop, you know, too, because, you know, what it's sometimes it's hard for new handlers to get their arms around this drag thing, you know. And uh, I had a guy call me this spring and he's like, well, how's, how do I know if my dog's doing it right? And it's like, well, did he bring back the rabbit? That's usually a pretty good indication. But um, <laughs> it, I mean, it is more <laughs> it, is, it is more complicated yeah, I'm not laughing at that. the guy. It just, again, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a, you know, your response. It's kind of like yeah. uh yeah, you know, uh, exactly. So go ahead. <laughs> you know, because, you know, you're starting with a dog and, you know, you really got to take a step back. Why, why, do, why do we do this drag thing? You know, uh, I don't, how, you know, what is this to hunting? You know, so, uh, you know, you really have to ask yourself, well, why, why are we doing these drags? And a lot of people don't understand that, you know, drag work, we're not doing it to test the tracking ability or dog. That's not what a drag is at all. You know, drags were really meant to to bridge that gap between independent uh, game retrieval and your force breaking. You know, you're starting with a dog that's force broke, but that dog really doesn't know you want it to go out and find game and that it doesn't know is even out there yet. You know what I mean? So the, the drag was really the task that we've asked the dogs to uh, to reinforce that independent game retrieval um, behavior. So when you go to a test, what can you expect? You know, at the at the Psalms, they're going to drag a game, and they drag it downwind. And the reason they drag it downwind is because the wind will actually help your dog extend that drag. You know, so when they drag it downwind, they do that to help your dog out, and then they'll put two obtuse angles in there uh, and um, they'll, uh, the judges will come up and ask you or show you usually where the start of the drag is. Like you'd mentioned, uh, they'll give you a hot spot. Uh, the cover, uh, they'll try to make sure that the cover is one height. Uh, it's not fair to the dog to transverse different um, conditions, ground conditions. That's actually a, uh, a barrier to a dog sometimes so they should give you one consistent cover 
and then you they'll um, they'll show you the hot spot, and then you have the ability to work that first 50 meters on the drag. And I think this is something that a lot of people don't use. And let me explain to you why why I think it's important. So let's take a step back now. And I'm the guy I'm training for this drag, right? So I've got a dog mm -hmm. that's force broke, but it doesn't know anything that I want it to do. So what you do is you, you start with a slip lead, which is usually, you know, a lead that goes underneath the collar. And, and if you have the ability, you know, you can let go of one end of the lead and the dog and just is freewheeling at that point. So you start with that dog and you'll point at hot spots and uh, the dog, you know, at first it's not going to know anything. It's like, well, yeah, it smells like a rabbit, but it's going to want to search because we got short hairs and these are search dogs. You know, they want to, they want to lift their head up and go find birds in the field. Right. So right. what you do right. is you reinforce, uh, put your hand down. And when your dog starts getting too uh, wide and too off the track, put the dog in the down and, and that gives that dog a timeout. And by down, I mean, the plots command or whatever you use to make that dog lie down, preferably right on the track. And then when the right. dog has resettled itself down, you start it again and start out with a nice short distance. I usually start out with 20 or 50 yards, nothing that's that uh, uh, long. And then I'll go almost all the way to the game. And only then will I slip the lead uh, on the dog to let it, get to the game. And then this is important. And I do this. I've never heard anybody else describe it, but I think it is important. When that dog gets to that game, I'll turn around and I will jog and give uh, uh, the dog praise all the way back to the start of the drag. And I think that's important because it's the beginning of building that behavior you want to see where the dog quickly grabs, grasps the game and brings it directly back to the handler, which is an important, it's an important behavior. So um, back to training. So now I'm training the dog. I've done a 50 and I'm doing it on the lead. And then I'm going to extend that out to, a, you know, a hundred. And I can do several of these over the course of the week because I have, I've got uh, total control over the entire scenario, right? I mean, very little chance that a dog is going, if a dog is force broke and I'm mm -hmm. pretty much leading it all the way to the end of the drag, it's going to do right. anything wrong. And I'm continuing to praise and build that dog's confidence so that dog's like, man, I really, I don't know what these drag things are, but they're pretty cool. And I see the boss, he's pretty jacked up too. He's jogging with me and running with me all the way back. And what you'll find is that you kind of get that pack, that dog pack interaction where that dog's bringing game back to the pack and uh, they enjoy that. And then uh, what I'll do only uh, when I get to 100, I'll start incorporating um, a corner. So everything up to that point has been straight line. Uh, if that dog misses the corner, I'll put him down and I'll bring him back around and I'll work that corner again. And eventually they'll, they'll make that corner uh, pretty easy. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, a hundred yards is pretty far in the grass. I, I like using grass that I can see that I've walked through that way. I know I'm on the track. 
So, okay. I, you know, I think that's a little important too, that you know where you're at when you're on this. Now, uh, an important thing to remember when we're doing these drags is to maintain the speed. You don't want that dog dragging you down the track. You want that dog working it uh, somewhat methodical. They can pull you down it a little bit because they're excited. They should be excited, you know, to get to the end of it. And that's really a good thing. But what you don't want that dog is so uh, if, if they're so excited that they're getting themselves off the track, then you need to put them down and settle them down again. And you need to build that behavior that track work is not hyper work, right? And I think the reason it's important because someday we're going to take these dogs to VGPs. And this is one of the opportunities we have as handlers to really work on that slow deliberate cadence when sure. we're on a lead. So I, I I think that's a nice carryover and really kind of the beginning of blood tracking work. But uh, okay. Okay. Only... Well, well put too. And you talk about that cadence and I recently uh, recently was uh, training with some folks and, and the same thing. They said, well, can you can you tell the dog's cadence when, they, when he's on it? I said, cadence? Would you... And again, you talk about reading a dog especially on the track. And that's something that's, uh, that's really key. Um, you know, and then by the, by the second time I had run a track that morning or that, ap that afternoon, exactly. I could tell, you know, they said, Hey, did you see his cadence on it? He just kind of, you know, he had, you know, every stroke he took, you know, it was kind of like the, the, the tail of a fish, you know, flipping back and forth as he's swimming. Right. And there's yeah. developed that, that, that rhythm. So, um, yeah, good, good stuff there. Let me tell you, that's, uh, and that and that will transfer over to helping work blood truck because that's probably one of the trickiest, uh, hard to do, tough things. Not that the task is necessarily hard, but the team effort between the two of you is hard uh, to right. uh, to develop. So, and a lot of you know a lot of the old timers they would tell you you know your blood track is nothing more than a drag. You know I don't mm -hmm. know if I believe that, but I've heard it said, and uh, I think if you work drags this way and you're this thorough. Um, I do think that that is a benefit you get out of it. Okay. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so now I, you know, you, you, when you're training, you, like I said, you just incorporated the angles and you work yourselves out to 350 meters, but you're always doing this, you know, on the lead and, okay. uh, only when I'm satisfied with what that behavior, I'll start slipping that lead. And kind of like field work, I'm not going to let that dog know when I'm slipping the lead, right? Uh, I might go 300 and then slip it for the last 50, or I might go okay. 150 and slip it and then come back the next time and do a 300 and slip it. So he never knows when I'm going to let him loose to finish the rest of the drag, right? So what he's not going to do is he's not going to build that anticipation I will tell you when you slip that lead, what you're going to see is that dog start to build speed and speed and speed. And these dogs, um, and I, I think this is important. Uh, and the reason is, is you notice that if you ever look through history, we, we probably have the most failures at Soames um, on, on drags, on rabbit drags. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, I, and I think the reason is, is that we don't spend enough time doing on, on, uh, on lead, lead uh, drags, right. Okay. 
And, uh, you know, when I started, you know, the, they always say that the Germans would have a saying a hundred on the lead before one off. And I, you know, I never counted them, but, uh, I think the, the picture there is, is that, you know, uh, more is better, (laughs) you know, so yeah, you know, teach a good behavior, uh, and, um, and I, I think you'll reap the rewards of the, of that behavior. Okay. Okay. Now when, you know, two, two questions I have for you. So when it comes to test day, um, and, and real quick, when you said you mentioned a slip lead, just so that, you know, our listeners, um, the ones that don't know, there is a proper way and an improper way to place a slip lead on a dog. Um, a lot of guys will use a piece of rope or string as a slip lead. Some guys will use a, a flat biothane, uh, you know, thin one I've seen, um, which I've kind of actually, I used on, on my pups VJP earlier in the spring. And one of the guys I was training with kind of keyed me on that. And it was a cool setup that he had. So I kind of mimic that. Um, and then some guys will use a piece of flat, like uh, uh, flat uh, webbing, if you'll say, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But the key to it is that, and, and any of them, no matter what what lead you use, you're going to take the lead from the top and you're going to loop it through either the loop or the collar itself and go underneath, okay? And when, when that lead slips out eventually, no matter where you let go of it, the lead kind of slips out and pulls back to your hand. Whereas if you do it the opposite way, you go underneath the collar and out the top, go ahead and put a rope on on, on your dog next time like that and see what happens. When you yank that thing out, it slaps the top of the rope on the top of the dog's head. And uh, I don't know about you, but I, I use a tap command for all of my training. So when I tell them fetch, it's fetch with also a touch command tap on the top of their head or a release or a heel, especially in a field scenario. If a dog is staying steady to a bird and goes ahead and the bird flushes and I want to heal my dog out of that scenario because we haven't shot it or whatever the case may be, or it's the honoring dog. I'm going to tap that dog on, on its head and give it the command at the same time. Uh, one of the reasons we do that is when you run with multiple dogs, if you never teach your dog to fetch on a dual command like that, as soon as somebody yells fetch, you could be nowhere near your dog and next thing you know, zoom, that dog's gone, right? So uh, same thing. Um, so just kind of a way we train. Uh, but yeah, that slip lead is important which way it goes in. Um, but now going back to the slip lead. So in a test scenario, Todd, you mentioned for the fall breed test, for Zalms, HZP, AZP, you can go down the dog, the track with the dog for, is it 30 meters, correct? At the rabbit track, you can go down 50 meters. 50. On the feathered, and the feathered drag, you can go down 20 meters. Okay. And, um. Uh, and I think that's important, you know, uh, you know, as you, you know, I'm trying to think of the best way to put this, as you move to different pieces of work, everything you can do to reinforce to the dog that, hey, this is what we're doing. So in the case of drags, hey, we're doing drag work. What we're not doing is field work, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, it's kind of the same approach when you do blood tracking work, but that's, you know, that's another conversation, but you kind of have a a regiment that you do that you put that dog in the situation and you might have certain behaviors or things that you do to reinforce that this is what I'm asking you to do in this piece. And, um, that, 
and in this in the case of um drags what i do is i usually put my drag rope i know it sounds stupid but right on at the car and i'll let the dog you know drag me to the drag i don't get too concerned about commands i'll point to the hot spot and like we said you know part of it is i'll work that first 50 feet on the drag on the lead you know 50 and feet or meters 50 meters i'll work on the on that lead and slip it there and i think uh, the benefit is there's two benefits the one is is it helps put that dog in the mind frame we're doing drag work we're not doing pointing work so it helps convey that to the dog the other thing it does is a little bit more subtle it also gives you a little distance between you and the judges Okay. And uh, the reason that's nice is, um, you know, you don't have, always have the opportunity to train with judges. And mm -hmm. anytime you get a chance to get a little bit of distance between you and the judges, I think it helps you out. So when that dog comes back to you, uh, they might overshoot you, go look at the judges, but uh, it gives you uh, a little bit better ability. Um, the more distance you have between the judges, the less chance you're going to have of that dog trying to go to the judges and present the game to them and not you. So um, I think that's a benefit. Okay. Yeah. And, and in fact, I, I just talked to a friend uh, today um, that's preparing for uh, Zalms here coming up. And, uh, you know, one of the, you know, one of his comments was that he's a first time handler. Um, and he's doing a great, great job with his dog. He's got a very, very nice dog and he's really dedicated. Um, and like, like any of us, you know, we always, he said, well, maybe, you know, maybe I made a mistake. I said, well, I promise you that's not going to be the first time. It's not going to be the last time I make mistakes with every dog. And so does everybody else. And you learn from them and you adapt to them and the things that you say, Hey, I'm not going to do that again with my dog, my next dog, I'm gonna do something differently you wind up doing something else different that's wrong or didn't work for that dog. So, but, um, but they're, they're pretty forgiving for the most part. But again, he, one of his comments was that, well, maybe her behavior was exhibited because, you know, in that manner, because there was a bunch of people there. I said, well, you know, that's something you're going to have to overcome quickly because test day is not far away. And that's something that was always reiterated to me is, you know, if you have an opportunity, uh, you know, and you train alone, train alone, train alone, come test day, you know, there's a minimum of four, uh, three to four people in the field for a Zalms or a fall test. And if there's two apprentices and you could have six, six people in the field with you. So, um, yeah. Now, one question I had for you, Todd, is what, leading up to the test, what's your frequency for tracks? Like you, do you set a schedule training them, working them, or how often you do them? Or is it, is it dependent on the dog? What do you look for that would make you do more tracks, meaning like what characteristics of a dog that would handle it more tracks or a dog that's less tracks? What warrants that? Yeah, I think uh, drags are one of the things that I think once, you know, I do an awful lot of work to get them where they need to be, but once they're there, I don't do very many of them. And I think okay. that's a case where less is more, especially when you're doing a lot of off, off lead, uh, um drags i don't like to I, I don't like to do a lot of them uh i i usually stick to the rule of thumb uh, one a week if i'm doing off off lead drags and the reason is is our dogs get bored doing these and uh when our dogs get bored doing things you kind of invite the opportunity for failure and correcting you what you don't want to be doing uh 
you know, three weeks before you got to run your test mm. is to be setting up a situation where your dog fails. And now uh, you're working on correcting a behavior rather than uh, reinforcing a behavior. And what I mean sure. by that is uh, you could have a case where your dog, um, if you run too many of them, they'll get bored. You're running in a field. What if your dog, your dog can d come across game, but uh, if you're training and your dog come across game, you, you might reinforce the behavior of search behavior instead of drag behavior. Or, mm -hmm. you know, if if uh, it's hot out and you're doing drags, which is another uh, opportunity for failure. You know, if you're going to have a dog that's going to have a retrieving problem, go out there and do a drag three weeks before your your test in the 90 degree heat. And on the last thing of the day and have your dog, you know, uh, uh, go underneath a shade tree and sit there with a rabbit in its mouth or spit the rabbit out and sit there and pant. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's, uh, if once it's doing it right, it, the challenge isn't trying to break your, break your training before you have an opportunity to show it off. Right. Right. And, 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 and I'm, I'm raising my hand over, I know we're not on video today, uh, but, uh, I'm raising my hand over been that guy. Um, you know, and that was a duck search for me again, the dog crushed, crushed a, a 40 minute duck search and produced a duck at the very end. Couldn't get a shot on it. He caught it, got 10 yards from the shore and stopped and just decided he was just going to drop it and shake and stand there for a second and catch his breath. Now, you know, and that's, that's when the wheels came off the bus and, the, the brake pads and the, and the rotors were skidding down the street as it was going sideways. So um, anything can happen, especially when you get close to a test. We've seen people push their dogs too hard and the dog gets injured. So like you said, you should be dialing back your training as you get closer to a test. And same thing, uh, I was told the same thing. About one a week, and I would probably two months up to Grand Zalms, I would, I would alternate them, you know, one duck, and then the next week I'd do a rabbit. So... Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, okay. And then you mentioned earlier, just to clarify, you, you, you said 20 and 50, but is that feet or yards? Or meters. meters really? Pardon me? Meters? Meters. Yeah. Okay. Meter. That's what I thought. And then I, I thought you, I heard you say feet and I'm thinking, okay. Ah, uh, that's so, just, that's, yeah. that's just my engineering slip. Well, Freudian, Freudian slip, right? <laughs> we, we get, we get confused, you know, everybody says, well, yards. I said, no, it's technically meters, but, but anyway, um, you know, and, um, you know the 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 second end of these these drags here are the retrieves of the drag and the importance of it and uh, so forth. So you know we want to talk about manner of retrieves regarding the drags. Yeah, and the manner of retrieve I think is it's something that's fairly consistent through all retrieving subjects. You know you want to see that properly. Uh, holding and grasping the game. Uh, you don't want to see a grasp that's too strong or too weak. You don't want hard mouthing. You don't want mutilated game. It is, uh, it is acceptable for a dog to readjusting, to readjust its hold on the game. But uh, if a dog is constantly dropping the game, that's an indication of uh, weak grasping of the, of the game. So you want that dog that does a good job of carrying the game back, comes back, sits and presents uh, with the Psalms. They can sit with a simple command and um, that's, that's really what you want. And it's, it's important um, at the Psalms to get a good furred game 
drag. It's more important than the feathered game in that uh, when you're scoring the retrieving, if you if you come to a point where you're between two numbers, you're supposed to weigh the score of the uh, feathered game more heavily. So it does have more of an effect than the other retrieving the, subjects. So the third game. You said, you said feather game, but the third game. I, I apologize yeah, if I yeah, did, right. but that's what I meant. So, yeah. so I am listening to you here. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Uh, hopefully our listeners are listening. I'm, I'm listening too, to you so. say I'm, I'm listening to you uh, say the wrong things, Todd, and correcting well, you. So. No, I, I don't mean to correct <laughs> you. I just, I caught it again. I think we were. We were oh, I'm teasing. <laughs> I apologize. No, sorry. So, um, you know, that that's what's, I mean, and, and that's going to be important throughout all your retrieving subjects and uh you know the important thing is to start with a good force trained dog um the retrieving subjects you know are are what's going to make or break you and if you plan on ever running a solms you need to or i'm sorry a vgp you need to make sure that uh, you start with a good trained force trained dog otherwise you're never going to get everything done so take the mm -hmm. time in force training um, that's a subject really in itself going over oh, training. Yep. Yep. That's uh, that. And it, it is, it is on the docket. I can't exactly say where it's going to fit in there, but we want to kind of, um, I want to get through these fall breed tests here and we want to have a little bit of fun with the podcast. Um, you know, talk about some, some, just some fun topics and hunting and different things. So, but we were, we are going to, we are going to address force fetch and, um, you know, trained retrieve and, and so forth and everything down the road here as we go. And especially, I think it'll be a, a, something to talk about again, one of the episodes of the VGP, I think it'll be probably a 50 part series knowing that test. Um, but, uh, but yeah, absolutely. So now, you know, something to Courtney, to our listeners out there, you know, Courtney Schaefer mentioned in episode four, uh, when we began this journey with our fall breed test here, um, the quality of your drag game is key. Uh, some guys like to dispatch their game, um, you know, at the test right prior to this immediately. But I can assure you some guys like that have that superstition that they want that rabbit that's been retrieved one time, that duck that's been retrieved one time on land by their dog, whether it's drug or not. Um, some guys will take their hands and rub their hands in the center portion of, of a rabbit and, and key and say that the dog will pick it up there because that's what, you know, it, it does it with for your scent, um, to bring it back to you. But one thing without hesitation is make sure you bring quality game, make sure you have enough game. Um, because, uh, that's one thing that you don't want to balk the test on is having a, having a foul duck for the retrieve and the dog just doesn't want to retrieve it or, or a, a rabbit that's, um, that's been repeatedly used, which is, which is great. You're being conservative, uh, with, with your training and stuff like that, but they're not that expensive, you know? So, uh, and rodentpro.com is, uh, is a, is a good source for rabbits for listeners out there, uh, that are getting into looking for furred game. In fact, we had one, uh, a friend of mine, um, he got some large rabbits, very large rabbits, Todd, I think to the, to the tune of like seven or eight pounds. <laughs> and, the cool part about it at first, it was like, oh, it was like a Freudian, you know, like a Freudian slip, a mix up when he ordered. And afterwards we were talking about, it, I'm like, well, heck, I'm like, that's, that's fantastic for like your, your forest drag work for your, 
for your fox raccoon or your fox in a box, your fox, you know, your animal over an object for the DGP. Because again, those are hard to come by, you know, animals in good shape, right? Um, so, but anyway, uh, sorry to cut you off there. I'll let you finish up with your manner of retreat. No, you're you're spot on you want good game it, it says it it says as much in the rules you're supposed to have fresh game i've been at tests where dogs uh have been given less than adequate game uh i have seen instances where i thought it might contribute to failures uh, but you're responsible for bringing your own game another thing too is you're going to be giving the option uh, you can have two rabbits. You can have one that's dragged and one that's laid at the the feet of the judges. Um, personally, I don't know if I consider it an advantage, but you know there are dogs. I have seen dogs that, uh, for whatever reason, they always continue past the first rabbit and go to the judge. And if you have one of those dogs, it's it's probably advantageous to have that second uh, rabbit or duck. Uh, placed right at the judge so be aware that that is an option you have sure sure so. yeah and you know and uh one of the things that again that you know i was taught to train on and so for our listeners out there first time handlers take the opportunity early on you know when you're doing some of your your yard work your your parking lot you know work if you want to call it retrieving and so forth like that have your dog pick up those set said game off of somebody's feet. Okay. Sounds crazy as it may be, but and I'm sure Todd has seen this many times, listeners. Your dog's gonna go out there and gonna go all the way down this track and can do a bang up job and get to the end. And if you've trained by yourself or you've never left somebody at the end of the track that it doesn't know, your dog's gonna get the end of the track, all of a sudden it's gonna start barking ward it off and the dog's going to come back to you and guess what that's it right so train for every scenario you want to train to the dog to to do well and then you put your you know i, I don't want to use the word train to failure but you try to put your um you try to find holes in your training and and, and patch them up right um so have the dog pick up the game off their feet and bring it to you when you do yeah. it at the end of a drag when you do finally release your dog like todd's saying and you give that dog that last 50 meters that goes by itself or 60 meters or 100 meters or whatever it be, you know, have that person sitting on the ground, you know, with his knees up in the air and put that game right on their feet. I promise you, when it comes to test day, the dog's not even going to pay attention to a person at the end of that track. doesn't mean if they know him or not. Yeah. So. And, and to reiterate on that, you know, I have seen, I have had the tests where the dog gets to the end of the track, gets to the judge and just starts barking and can't get beyond that sure you know and that's and uh, that's a dog too that's never had anybody at the end of the drag right you right know? nope i'm i'm with you you know 100 percent. so again these are all these are not my these are not my pearls of wisdom that i share with you these are these are the pearls of wisdom that have been passed to me and and hopefully i can pass them to others and and that's some some of the some of the reason and purpose behind this podcast so Hopefully that, uh, you know, we can all gain from it and uh, new and old um, and pick up something from it. So, um, you know, moving on, Todd, is there anything, and I know we talked about cooperation, desire, and obedience. 
with the field portion. Is there anything in those subject or those those categories or topics that you want to address when it comes to the drags or manner of retrieve? Um, nothing's really coming to mind, I guess. Okay. Okay. All right, and that's fine. That's fine. Like I said, I kind of I had them relisted on there again when I kind of set you sent you a little bit of a, a, a topics for what we'd be discussing today. And I thought, well, I um, kind of, you know, jump back in and just say, hey, just in case we, in case something you thought of as you went through or whatever, but I think we've covered that pretty well. Um, I, I did have something I wanted to talk about. Oh, okay. All right. Um, Absolutely. I, I don't know if anybody has... Um, if you've mentioned this, but uh, on July 25th, we lost, you know, Jerry Kellogg. And uh, for those of you who didn't know Jerry, Jerry was a person who had, uh, when I started 21 years ago, Jerry was training for the, the Kleeman uh, with, I think it was Ornavon Riverwoods. Mm -hmm. And he was a judge at the time. So I hazard to guess he's probably was doing the German dog thing 25 to 30 years Wow. And he was one of, um, you know, he was one of our first judges. He, you know, he started running dogs when uh, we didn't have DK judges. We had VDD judges, and that's what he ran under. And that's the, those are the people that taught him. And, uh, you know, for the, for the DK group and, and even for the German hunting dog uh, group, uh, he was a person that was tireless in his ability to contribute uh, in the way of judging and helping new handlers out. So mm -hmm. um, if you didn't have the opportunity to meet him, it's uh, sad. Um, but for those of us that did, you know, we're really uh, reeling from the loss. And um, so I just wanted to um, well, bring that up. Thank you. And, and I think, uh, why don't we uh, take a moment of silence for for Jerry and and all that he contributed and and all the lives that he touched, uh, you know, within all the dog clubs and systems. So, uh, thank you, Jerry, and uh, we'll have a moment of silence here for you. Thank you, Todd. I I I, uh, I did see that. Uh, recently, I think somebody had sent out an email or a post or something. So, but thanks for, uh, thanks for sharing about Jerry. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a great thing we've talked about in, in some of the other episodes, um, that, you know, there's, there's key instrumental people that we, you know, took their time back then to, to make available what we have today, right? The clubs make all the clubs, what they are, the various breed clubs, the various clubs within the system. And, um, you know, and bring us all together. So, uh, so thank you. So, um, yeah, as we, we start to, um, wrap up, uh, this episode here, Todd, uh, let me ask you, is there anything pertaining to the Zalms, uh, HZP fall breed test that you want to talk about something that's special, you know, um, that you think we need to cover? I know the water work we'll get into with, uh, our next guest, uh, next week here. We'll be recording that, but um, is there any portion of that that you feel you wanted to bring some pearl of wisdom to our listeners? No, I think that the um, the thing that people should keep in mind is uh, the Psalms is really meant to be uh, that test for that dog that's ready to go into its first hunting season. 
and um, the expectation is in line with that. You know, this is really a philosophy where, you know, you bring a dog along through, you start them in the spring, uh, the skills that they learn, uh, you build upon for the Psalms. And uh, likewise, the things that you teach in the Psalms are the groundwork for what will become your VGP dog. So mm -hmm. um, keep that in mind. So, I mean, as a judge, you tend to tailor your expectations that this isn't a perfect dog. Not everything it does is going to be finished dog material. And that's not really the expectation. The expectation is, is that you've put in the training and gotten it ready so that you can take that dog out and it's, uh, and be somewhat successful with it, uh, hunting. So. Sure. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. That, that's great. Uh, great advice. Great advice. So, but with that being said, I'm not gonna, um, you know, I'm not gonna let you off the hook that easy. I got two final questions for you as we wrap up here. So the first one is, um, what is the most important thing for you or you can advise for the, you know, handler to be prepared for, for the fall breed test? Like when they, when they, they show up that day, what's the most important thing that they've done besides bring their on and toffle, which is the pedigree, by the way, again, somebody called me out on that and said, what's an on and toffle? Because I think it was mentioned several times in the last episode. So, um, I'm trying to do my best to reference it in, um, uh, I don't want to use the word layman's terms, but, uh, like you said, um, non-engineering terms or whatever, but yeah. Um, so the pedigree in German is, is called an Anantafel. So we just, we've got grown accustomed to saying that frequently, uh, and forget that people that are not, uh, in the system deeply don't know that. So, but again, anyway, go ahead. What is the most important thing besides bringing your pedigree to the test? Um, you know that I've I've always found that the hardest thing for test day is just dealing with the nerves. Okay. You get so you get so nervous that I think you make more mistakes yourself than than uh, your dog ever creates. And uh, you know one one thing that I've always tried to do is uh, you know after I get done with a subject at a test, put your dog in the box and uh, decompress for a minute. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that it just, I think that you need it as a handler and uh, you don't realize how, uh, how nervous, you know, you would think it's just a dog test, but it's, you know, um, for me, the nerves has always been the, the biggest issue. So if you can uh, take a few minutes and just kind of decompress, you know, in between subject, it gives you a chance for your nerves to get back. And sometimes it gives your dog a break too. So sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it reminds me, it reminds me of the old joke about the, 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 the old priest giving a young priest some advice and he tells him to put a glass of water and a glass of vodka at the pulpit. And he, he talks about it. He says, you know, if you get nervous, take a, a sip of the vodka to calm you down. Right. And, uh, you know, afterwards, uh, he gives, he gives a heck of a sermon and, uh, the old priest, uh, I don't remember the exact details of the, the letter he sent him, but he says, he goes, the next time, he said, so-and-so didn't do this, so-and-so didn't do this, remember Jesus didn't do this, and 
sip the vodka, don't gulp it. <laughs> so again, same thing, you know, find, find your opportunity to relax and decompress it. Great advice. Um, you know, same advice that was given to me years ago. So with, with any and all dog tests, not just these in particular. So, uh, awesome. Awesome. And, and the last but not least question for you is, um, you know, and, I, and I've been asking all of our guests on here just cause I want to try to lend some, some good story to it. Uh, you know, give me your 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 top story, your your number one story with your German versal hunting dog, with your DK. Talk to me and tell me, you know, what's that one story that you could look at a picture of that one dog and you automatically instantly think of that exact hunt or retrieve on that hunt or something like that. Yeah. I re I remember I had a good buddy of mine, Andy Sabota, and I mean, um, he, he was a setter guy. He was more of a bird hunter than a, a setter guy, I should say. But we used to go up north. Uh, we 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 got started on bird hunting. We'd go north grouse hunting every weekend, and, you know, we had a blast. But uh, he came out and visited me when I lived in North Dakota one time. And uh, he had, like I said, he was hunting with one of his setters. And uh, he dropped a bird over a cattail slough and his his dog wouldn't go in and get it and he's walking around this cattail slough and after a few minutes he yells todd 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 and i hear him and i go over there and i've got my dog arrow right and he's uh -huh. like man i dropped this rooster in this slough and he says my dog won't go get it he says what do i do and, and i'm like well where is it you know so you know um he gave me a direction and uh you know i had arrow um, Bomb Dakota, she was, uh, probably, she was the first pup, the dog that I had that it was actually out of one of my breedings. And, uh, okay. uh, she, I gave, you know, I stood on the edge of that cattail slough and I gave her a line. He says that bird's about, you know, in about 30 yards, you know, straight in from us. So I just stood there, I gave her a line and, and, uh, she took that line and disappeared and within uh, 10 minutes come back out with that rooster. And I was so proud, <laughs> you know, I was like, and that's why we train these dogs, <laughs> you know, so, Absolutely. so that was, uh, and that's, uh, um, I think that's probably one of the stories I, I remember the best, or maybe I just like telling the story the best. Maybe that's not, now do you is. still hunt with him? You know, uh, we haven't hunted the last few years, you know, his, uh, older dog died and, uh, we haven't done a great job of keeping in touch. So no, we, we don't, but, uh, okay. I've asked him to I go, was just wondering oh, if you still, every, if you... every couple of years I'll, we'll get on Facebook and I'll be like, Hey man, when are you coming out? Uh, we got to kill some birds and, uh, you know, life gets in the way of things, I guess. Sure. Sure. And you know what it does, um, you know, but sometimes the, uh, the, uh, the journey's worth it. You know, sometimes you, you, uh, you get to experience different things and so forth. And, uh, you know, it's not always, sometimes you don't always get to choose the path you have to go down, but just, uh, just enjoy it and, and, and try to have fun along the way. And I had a guy reach out to me, uh, an old friend and he's been out of the, uh, out of the bird dog world for quite a while. Uh, just doing big game hunting as his kids kind of came through high school and college and, uh, you know, he changed jobs several times now and, you know, he contacted me and said, Hey, my wife said she wants to find me another bird dog. So, 
Um, so he says, hey, can you, can you put me in touch with some people? I said, yeah, sure. Let me, let me uh, make some phone calls and, and, you know, and, and talk to him. And, but again, now we got to remember his last dog was 15 years old, Todd, when he lost it. And he oh. hasn't had a dog in eight years. So that's 23 years. I told him, I said, you know, I think the price has gone up a little bit. since. <laughs> <laughs> there was a little sticker shock initially, but, um, but he's, he's on board with getting a quality, quality bred dog and stuff like that. So kind of, kind of, too. Uh, I'd, I'd like to bug you too. I'd like to have a shout out to uh, a young dog owner, uh, okay. a gentleman named Dan Rossman. He, I work with him here and, uh, I told him about uh, these podcasts, and uh, he's got a new DK puppy. Or no, he's got a new short hair puppy. But okay. next dog's going to be a DK. I, I guarantee you. And, uh, and uh, he's been listening to every podcast, and he says they're pretty good. So I just wanted to report back to you. Hey, man, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Always, always, uh, always great to give a shout out, and uh, you know, uh, it's uh, it's cool. So thanks for listening, Dan, and. Uh, you know, uh, maybe uh, you actually get a DK for your next one there, and we'll be able to get you on the show, and you'll be able to talk about your first-time handler experiences or something there like that. There you go. So Comes very, full very circle. Cool. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> so, well, Todd, you know, let's let's wrap this thing up. And, uh, you know, first off, I want to thank you uh, immensely for taking time out of your schedule and coming on the show. I want to thank you for sharing your training and handling perspectives for the field portions of the fall breed test. I hope that our listeners have enjoyed this episode as much as we did recording it for you. As I mentioned on the intro, today's episode is part two of three on the fall breed test. Okay. So the next episode, we'll be looking at the water portion and some of the evaluated attributes um, from the perspective, again, of the trainer slash handler. Uh, we will discuss how to train for the various components and what to do on test day as well again. So um, without further ado, please remember to hit the subscribe button on your player. Don't forget to like us and follow us on Facebook. Until next time, Wiseman's Heil and Prost.